You know, the weather's beautiful outside, amen? Man, but you know what? I think it's more beautiful inside. I think the body of Christ is something beautiful to behold. When we come together as his hands and his feet, and just all the members of the body coming together, fitly joined together, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And I'm, I'm thankful to be a small part of it. Uh, this morning, Manuel Munoz is going to be our scripture reader. So Manuel, if you'll come on up here. Is he still here? There he is. All right, cool. And so we are in uh, Mark chapter 3. And uh, moving along here, we probably will stay in the book of Mark for maybe another 27 weeks or so. So, Manuel, why don't you read the scripture for us, and you all follow along on the screen or on your device or your Bible. And he went out on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, uh, James, the son of uh, Zebedee, and John, the brother of John, uh, James, to whom he gave the name uh, Barnerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Aphius, and uh, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Manuel. We appreciate you doing that. Manuel and Heather have been with us from the beginning, eight years. And so uh, we, when we started with just a handful of people, and God's moved us around to different locations, but uh, we appreciate them being here. Thanks, Manuel, for reading for us. Um, Don Wingett is the professor of astronomy at the University of Texas. He's one of the smartest minds in the world on that subject. He's the author of 334 research works, 7,625 citations, 3,742 reads. He grew up in the church, but in his teens, he decided that God did not exist. He says, I started out arguing and then debating. I studied the Bible quite a bit as a child. I knew scripture. And that made me dangerous in debates. I had a list of 50 examples where I thought the Bible was contradictory that I would use. I would often bring up these and consider myself a fire-breathing atheist. My wife and I had five kids. She was a cultural Christian, and when I challenged her faith, she became an atheist. But sometime later, it became obvious to us that our two oldest boys didn't have any real spiritual or moral compass. My wife and I spent a great deal of time talking and worrying about this. Neither of us gained a spiritual or moral compass at school. That happened by going to church in our childhood. Because of this, we decided that we needed to find some religion of the world and use that to guide our kids and to get involved. We didn't want to just dump them off and drive off. We realized, though, that we would have to find some place to get connected. In our minds, this religion had to be plausible. So once again, my wife and I both started investigating different world religions. With my background in anthropology, what we were looking for was a religion that, that wasn't archaeologically falsifiable. In the midst of this research, we began looking for places our youngest to go to son to go to daycare. The only one we found would, that would take him was a Christian church. When we ran into the pastor, we realized that this was someone we could talk to about Christianity. That pastor recommended some books to read, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel's book cites archaeological and other non-biblical evidence for Christ. Over time, Don Wingett, professor of astronomy at the University of Texas, became a Christian and trusted Christ as Savior. And you know what? I see, yes, give the Lord a hand because God can reach anybody. And I'm sharing these different stories of atheists who become Christians for a reason. Is because if you truly look at the evidence, not just scientific evidence, but biblical evidence, and both of them working together, there's no other conclusion to, but to realize this. There was a man who lived a legendary life who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he did it. And he rose again, something no one has ever done since and never ever done before, and I think that man has some authority that we should listen to him. And that man's name is Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of Mark is about this man. 
So if you're new to Christianity, I, I want to encourage you, read the Gospel of Mark and read it with an open mind and an open heart and ask God, if you're real, show yourself to me in this Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels that you choose to read. So come along with us as we journey through Mark. And, and this is definitely a situation where skeptics are welcome and you can learn your way to f find out what Jesus is doing in your life as well. So this morning we're learning about 12 lessons from Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. And these will go by quickly, but you can apply these 12 lessons that he employed to make decisions on your own. The first one is prioritize prayer. Prioritize prayer. We often think of prayer as the last resort when really it needs to be what? It needs to be the first thing that we do. It says, and when he went up on the mountain, and then he called to him those he desired. Luke adds a little more detail for us here. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain to do what? To pray. Now Mark just complied because everybody knew that when Jesus went to the mountain, that's what he went there for. But Luke adds a little more detail. He says, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. Every time I read that, I'm just blown away. I, I just... I struggled to pray for 15 minutes. And I can't even imagine Jesus praying all night, but he did. And sometimes prayer has to be that way where it is a labor of love. It's something that we work through. And there's times where you've been greatly concerned or your heart is broken and you're up all night and you're praying all night. But Jesus was doing this because this was a big decision. Yes, Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man who put himself totally reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why he needed to pray. And when you make big decisions, don't just flippantly jump into them. You know, that's where pride comes in, right? Where we think, I got this, I got this, I know what I'm doing. And man, some of us older people could tell you, we're, there's some of those decisions we wish we could reel back in. When we just thought we knew and we thought we were so smart, you know, we need to pray on the big decisions and the little decisions. And of course, and it says, and when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12. It's funny, I've read, the, I've read this passage of scripture, I don't know how many hundreds of times, but I never even thought about that. He called all the people who were following him, and he says, okay, you 12. I always thought he called the 12, but it says he called all his disciples, and we don't know how many were there at the time. Maybe there's 40 or 50. He says, of all you, I want these 12 to be my, the disciples, the main 12. So Jesus, if Jesus prioritized prayer before making big decisions, how much more should we? You have a potential new job coming up? Pray about it. I mean, pray and pray and pray some more. Trying to decide whether to buy a new car or not? You need to pray about it. Man, how many times do we wish we could take that back? <laughs> Where we get ourselves in debt and think, man, what have I done? Deciding whether to date somebody or not? Please pray. Please pray. Man, there's... So many times we pay the stupid tax because we didn't take time to pray. If Jesus, God in human flesh, needed to pray, we need to do the same. Number two, Jesus calls, we respond. Jesus calls, we respond. It says, and he called to him and they came to him. This is not only a picture of Jesus calling his disciples. This is a picture of salvation. God calls you by his Holy Spirit. We respond in faith and trust Christ. It's always God taking the initiative. Okay, Jesus, we are the, the church, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. It's the male in the relationship that should be taking the initiative, and he's the one that's always pursuing us, like we sung earlier, chasing us down and pursuing the, the 99, you know, leaving the 99 to pursue the one that's gone astray. You know, we say, well, when I was 14, I found Jesus. Well, really, the truth is, Jesus found you, okay? And and it's not like you had nothing to do with it, though. See, Calvinists would teach that it's all God and his sovereignty, and you have nothing to do with it. You couldn't be lost if you wanted to be. You, you, know, you had nothing to do with your salvation. He chose you. He predestined you and all that. And I believe in predestination and election, but I also believe in the free will of man. And you say, well, Gary, how can both be true? How can God be totally in control, and yet I have a choice? I don't know. How can, God, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? I don't know. My little brain can't wrap around. All I know is the Bible says, whosoever will may come, and yet God chose you before the foundations of the world. We don't have to choose one or the other. It's not all up to you, and it's not all God's election. They both work together because he truly is sovereign. And God may be calling you this morning. Maybe you're not, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, but you can feel the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart, 
saying, I know I'm lost. I know my life can't continue the way it's going. I need to do something, and I need Jesus to fill that empty spot. Romans 8 says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see them both working together? You love God, God calls you. They're both working together, and that's part of the all things that work together for our good. We go on to number three. Relationships first and responsibility follows. Relationships first, responsibility follows. It says, He appointed the twelve, whom he named also apostles. Okay, so all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Put that in your brain for a little bit later. And why did he call them? So that, here's the reason, that they might just be with him. Just be with Jesus. Did you know that the number one reason God saved you is just so you could be with him? Say, well, it's to serve God. It's to do this. Yeah, all that's important. But just being with God, being close to Jesus, being in his presence, looking him in the eyes and him looking at you and saying, you know, Peter, I love you. John, man, I got great plans for you. Let's just hang out here for a while. And there was so many times Jesus and disciples were just hanging out and learning and loving on Jesus. And it says, then, and then he might send them out to preach. You see, many times we get saved, we just, we just want to jump up and serve God and do, 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 and not spend time to be with Jesus. You know the story of Mary and Martha? Remember they were having Jesus over for dinner and they were both working for a while, but when Jesus got there and started to teach, Mary just dropped everything from the kitchen, and when she went out, she sat at the feet of Jesus, which is a sign of a disciple. They sat at Jesus' feet, and Martha is still in the kitchen, frantically scurrying about, trying to get it done, making sure the biscuits don't burn, making sure the, the water's boiling, everything's going, there's plenty of iced tea and all that good stuff. And, and yet, she comes out and says, Jesus, would you please tell my sister to get back in the kitchen? And he says, Mary's chosen the better thing, you know? And so we, we get so busy wanting to serve God and do for God, and we can't even spend 15 minutes in the morning just to be with him. It's not an either or. It's a first and second. First we spend time with Jesus, then we serve him and go out and share his word. In Acts chapter 4, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Now think about that for a second. Peter had just got done denying the Lord three times. Two of them to a little girl, <laughs> okay? Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? I don't even know the man. Get away from me, blankety blank. And he just starts cursing. And he's embarrassed to even admit he knows Jesus. And now he's boldly proclaiming Jesus even at the risk of his own life. Him and John. And they perceived that they were uneducated, common. And these guys didn't have college degrees. These weren't PhDs. And they, they, but yet these guys are proclaiming the Old Testament about how it all points to Jesus Christ and how he's the fulfillment and he's the Messiah. And they're like, man, these guys are talking like they are Pharisees who've been educated for their whole life. Where are they getting this power? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus best compliment anyone can give you all day long is, man, you, you look like you've been with Jesus. You talk like you've spent time with Jesus. That's the best compliment anybody could ever give you. And that needs to be what we're shooting for. That every morning we get up, we spend time with Jesus. And we've talked with him and we walk with him all throughout the day. And it changes who we are to where other people will be astonished at the supernatural work in, her, in, our, in our, the lives that the Holy Spirit's doing. You see, we often become frustrated in or fail at sharing Jesus because we've not spent time with him first. You, it's hard to tell your next door neighbor that they need Jesus when you've gone all day without needing them. You know, we, we need him desperately. That's the thing that I appreciate what Nathan said before the, the mess, you know, when he was getting up before he's singing, is that we all desperately need the Lord. Many times we just don't recognize it. I don't care if you just got saved last week and you're going to get baptized soon, or you've been saved for 40 years. You desperately need Jesus today just as much as you did back then. So if we will spend more and more time with Jesus, falling deeply in love with him, It'll just overflow. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And it'll just become natural to share Jesus because we love him and we're so excited about him. It won't be frustrating. Number four, followers make the best leaders. Followers make the best leaders. Now, 19 times in the Gospels, and I know you can't read that. I just want you to be able to see the yellow. 19 times Jesus says, follow me, follow me. Now, 
it's important to serve him. It's important to share him and proclaim him. But the most important thing you can do as you're living the Christian life is just follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It's just like the old wristband used to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And you're walking in his steps. You're making decisions based on that. Not on what your parents taught you necessarily. Not on what this is what all my friends are doing or this is what's popular today. It's what would Jesus do? I want to follow in his footsteps and walk the way he walked. You see, Jesus does not follow us. I've heard so many people say, well, you know, I tried Christianity. And I asked Jesus to do this for me. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. And I prayed that my husband would, would come back to me, and he didn't. He left me for another woman. So I don't know. Jesus won't even do that for me. So wait a minute. You're bossing Jesus around? You're telling him what he should be doing? That sounds like you're the Lord, and he's your disciple. We don't tell Jesus what to do. We don't name it and proclaim it and just boss God around, just do whatever. We say, not my will, but yours be done. We're following Jesus. It's not the other way around. And, and Jesus didn't follow the crowd. He didn't step up and say, okay, hey, everybody, disciples, what's cool? What, what, what kind of music does everybody want to hear? Let's build our church that way. Let's, let's do smoke and mirrors and lights and all that stuff like that. And I'm not knocking any of that stuff. That can be cool in the right place, right time. But that doesn't necessarily build a church, okay? He didn't follow the crowd and say, what's popular? Well, we better not speak on this topic because that will offend people and make them go away. In fact, Jesus did the opposite. Jesus would do miracles and feed the multitudes and thousands would come and he'd start preaching harder and it'd all go away because he wanted to find out who's really following me for me versus who's following me for the free fish sandwiches. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to preach hard. He wasn't afraid to stick to the topics that offended people if that's what it took. He didn't follow the crowd. He didn't know they were popular and neither should we. Next thing we learn here is that small groups are powerful. How many did Jesus call? 12. Could Jesus not have called 100? Easily. 40? 80? He could have called any number. He, he could have called 1,000 disciples. You would think that if he's going to start a movement that changes the world, let's call as many as possible. But Jesus says, no, I want to start small. I want to be so intimately close to these men that they know me so well that they will turn the world upside down. And he does things different than we do. And it's also interesting that 12 what does that number sound familiar with? Twelve tribes, yeah. Because think about this. This is also a smack in the face to the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees spread themselves out and delegated the twelve tribes amongst themselves, as in we're the spiritual leaders of the twelve tribes. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, i got twelve guys that are going to replace you, one for each tribe. And it would be interesting. I kind of researched this, but didn't find anything on it. I'm curious to find out when I get to heaven. If there was one disciple for each tribe by their lineage, it might be an interesting theory, but I, I don't know. And like I said, there's nothing really to confirm that. But he chose to, there's not? Right, I thought about that. There's two sets of brothers, but what if mom is from one tribe and dad's from another? It still counts. Just like Joseph and Mary, Jesus has two lineages in the two gospels. So yeah, good thinking though. So but Jesus, by appointing 12, that number is, is a smack in the face of the Pharisees. Say, hey, you guys have been replaced, okay? I, I, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and here's my 12. We're going to take over the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. Now, here's what small groups provide, okay? And, and this is a plug for our life groups, okay? But it's very biblical. Small groups provide godly friendships, Godly friendships. I remember when I was a young pastor, approximately you know, my late 20s, I remember an older pastor saying to me, Gary, you can't be friends with the, your church members. You've got to be friends with other pastors because your church members will just hurt you. Dumbest piece of advice I've ever been given in my life, okay? My best friends are in this room right here. It's been that way, and it will continue to be that way. And does it hurt sometimes? Yes, it hurts. But I, I, I believe this is what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't aloof of his 12 disciples. He was amongst them. He loved them. He cared for them. And let me tell you something. Yes, you need friends, but you importantly need godly friends. Godly friends who will encourage you. They'll provoke you to love and good works. That when you have fallen down and feel like you can't get up, they will be the ones that get on either side of you and to lift you up. You need godly friendships. You need accountability. You need someone to say, hey, how are you doing with that struggle, that area of your life that you, you've been tempted to sin? And they could put their arms around you and say, hey, let's pray with you. And when you're feeling weak, text me, call me, let's talk, let's work this way. The success of Alcoholics Anonymous has been based on these things right here. And yet they got that from Christianity, 
We're not trying to do it the other way around. You need godly friendships. You need accountability. And number three, you need help when life gets difficult. You know, it's, it's great to see in our church that when someone's in the hospital, the first thing that happens is their life group rallies around them and makes sure that, that someone visits them in the hospital or they send meals to their house or whatever. That's the way it should be. And then the whole church steps in, but particularly your life group is the one that rallies around you. And when life gets hard, when you lose your job, when your marriage is suffering, you get together with your friends and you do life together and you heal together. No, number four, seeing God and His Word from different angles. I, I, I am so thankful that so many times in life groups, somebody says something about a scripture. I'm like, I've been studying that verse for decades. I never saw what you just saw there. And just hearing that and having that iron sharpen iron in a life group where people can share different perspectives and have different sets of eyes seeing the same verse in different ways. And then praying in numbers. Praying in numbers. The Bible encourages us in many passages about two or three gathering together and praying in my name and, and, and praying um, in one accord. And then you see also, um, and that's in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and then encouragement. Just sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're like, it's been a rough week. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And we just get tired. Sometimes we get tired of serving the Lord. Sometimes we get tired of setting up chairs. Amen. So sometimes we're like, I don't know, getting up early and doing this over and over again. And, you know, kids keep me up late at night and I get up early in the morning. And just a word of encouragement, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That, that's just that boost of encouragement that we need that we get from our small group. It says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. And like I mentioned earlier, all, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. And there's a lot of confusion about apostles today. Um, the Bible makes it very, very clear what, it, what the qualifications are for an apostle, okay? Look at these with me. Number one, they had to have seen the Lord and been an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. They personally saw the Lord after His resurrection and they were an eyewitness of that. You see that in several places in Scripture. In fact, the Corinthian church was saying, well, Paul, he's not even an apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. He's like, hey, did I not see him on the road to Damascus? He appeared to me personally. I saw the resurrected Lord. And so therefore I am an apostle based on that. Number two, you had to have been personally selected by him. Now, hundreds, if not thousands of people saw Jesus after his resurrection. How many days did he walk the earth after his resurrection? 40 days, okay? So lots and lots of people saw him. In fact, at one time, over 500 people, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, but not all of them necessarily were apostles, but there were certain people that he personally said, go and be my apostle. And then the third thing was, they had to have been given miraculous power. Some could say, well, I'm an apostle. And people say, well, how do we know? And then they could perform a miracle to back it up. That's been God's pattern throughout Scripture. Moses says, to God, if I go to Pharaoh, what am I going to say? Why would he listen to me? He said, what do you have in your hand? He said, a shepherd's staff. And he said, that's enough. And of course, Moses, how many miracles did he work with that? He laid it down. It turned into snakes. He smote the rock with it. He put his, the rod over the Red Sea. It parted. He used that simple little stick over and over again to confirm that, hey, I am God's messenger. Elijah calling out fire from heaven. You see the prophets over and over again performing miracles. But it wasn't just for, hey, everybody, let's draw a crowd. Look at this miracle. It's like, no, no, I speak for the Lord. Well, how do we know? Here's God working through me through this supernatural. But that, it doesn't end there. It's a sign. And what does the sign point to? Here's now my message. Thus says the Lord. So listen to what God is saying. So you see that the, all the apostles had these miraculous powers. In Ephesians 2.19, it says, and so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, which is another word, phrase for the church. So you used to be lost, foreigners, and now you're part of the household of God, the church, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you'd put down like a perfectly shaped cube and that would be the cornerstone. Everything else was built off of that, the foundation, which was the apostles and prophets. How many houses have two foundations or three foundations or four cornerstones? 
No, you have one cornerstone, you have one foundation, the rest is built on. You can have thousands of bricks and thousands of boards, but you have one foundation. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches, that the foundation has been built. The apostles are, are what they were. I don't believe that there are apostles today for these three reasons. I don't think that any of them can say, I saw the resurrected Lord. They weren't there at the resurrection. Therefore, he didn't choose them personally. And I don't think they had the, they claimed to have miraculous powers, but it's always like, oh, my back hurts. Oh, not my back is better. Jesus healed stuff that was so obvious. Blind people seeing and and withered hands and leprosy, not to mention raising the dead. So a lot of these people who claim to be prophets today, where, where is the raising of the dead? It's because they're not, okay? I'm not saying God does perform miracles, so don't hear what I'm not saying. God definitely does miracles, but he doesn't do it through apostolic power the way he did then. These were the apostles, and they, these were the three requirements, and that's what Scripture clearly teaches. So they are the one foundation. Now, in the Bible, in Greek and in Hebrew, there's no such thing as uppercase and lowercase letters. That's a nice invention of English, and it helps us understand things. But if you look at the context, you will see there are the apostles, which literally means the sent ones. The sent ones. If I wrote down a note and folded up and said, hey, Nathan, would you take this to Tammy? He is being sent to take a message to Tammy. Okay? Tammy's my wife, by the way, for those who know. Um, anyway, he is a sent one with a certain purpose to send a certain message. And oftentimes in the Bible, a messenger would actually read the message to them. And you saw that a lot of times when you saw Paul saying he delivered a letter, like one of the epistles, by hand to someone, and they would read it to the church. So there are the, the apostles, which we just read about, but then in one sense, we're all an apostle. We're all sent, okay? We're not the apostles who've seen the resurrected Lord performing miracles and all those things like that, but we are all sent to carry a message, and that's the gospel. There's the disciples, the 12, but then there's lots of disciples. Jesus said he called all his disciples, and then he chose the 12. There's the Son of God, but if you're born again, you are a child of God or a son of God, okay? There's elders in a church which are appointed and, and ordained, but then there's people who are elders in the sense that they're older and they're leaders in a spiritual sense. There are deacons, which means servant. And those are, again, who are ordained within a church. But then we're all servants in one sense, a little d-servant. There's the pastor or pastors in a church. But in one sense, pastor means shepherd, right? So we're all shepherds. If, you, if you're a mom and got kids, you're a shepherd in that sense. There's missionaries. And our church supports several missionaries all over the world and was sending the gospel. And they are the official missionaries. But in another sense, aren't we all missionaries sent to our neighborhood to share the gospel? So the Bible clearly teaches too, and we make that distinction and, and we recognize who's in the official capacity and in all in functioning capacity. Go to the next point here with me. It says, we, one of the things we learn, lessons we learned from Jesus choosing the 12 is that he wants us to be faithful over little things first. Be faithful over little things. This is what the disciples did at first. And you know, here's Jesus coming and saying, I'm the new king of the world, okay? And they're expecting an actual physical kingdom where they're going to go to war against the Romans and be victorious and set up an actual throne in Jerusalem and, and rule the world, okay? But Jesus starts giving them little jobs. Hey, I just want you to listen and learn. And, and hey, we're going to go into this next town. Would you make sure we have food in the next town? I need you to pack up everything for travel. If you're watching The Chosen, you kind of get the feel for this, and they do it really well. I, I need you to get a boat ready for me. I'm going to teach. Um, I need you to deliver a message for me. Go tell John in prison that I said everything's going to be okay. Hey, here's 12 loaves, I mean five loaves and two fishes. We're going to turn it into food. Would you guys pass this out? And I'm sure there were times that like James and John were like, what are we doing here? We're supposed to be ruling the world. We're passing out fish sandwiches. You know, what's going on here? And they thought maybe they were too good for that. But the Bible says, you be faithful over the little things, and I'll make you ruler over much. And they graduated to this, to where then they became preaching and healing and casting out demons and other miracles. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, do not lay hands on, and the word lay hands means to ordain, to recognize as someone in official leadership capacity. Don't do that quickly. How many times have we seen it where someone comes new to church and they instantly want to teach or preach or lead in music or they want to do something right away and they just want to shoot right to the top? And it's like, oh, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but maybe you can start helping with chairs. And <laughs> We need help taking out the trash. And you know what? If you have a humble spirit, you don't mind doing those things. 
And then you just kind of slowly lead by example, and you become a servant leader. That, and therefore, then you become recognized to do those things. I was talking to someone recently about possibly moving into eldership here at Revolution Church. And they're like, ah, oh, I'm not really sure I'm ready. I'm, whatever. I'm like, that, that's the perfect attitude. <laughs> if you think, oh, I'm ready. I know a lot of Bible. I'm ready to lead. You know, it's like, hey, tone it down there, Barbus. You know, I, I'm not sure you are ready. Um, Matthew 5, 20, 25, 21 says, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. That's the way God's economy works. You take care of the little things, you be faithful and you do in the details, and God will promote you to better and bigger things. Number seven, celebrate the differences. Celebrate the differences. You look at this group here. First of all, if you were going to start a worldwide revolution, would you pick fishermen? <laughs> Probably not. And yet that's the bulk of what Jesus chose. Now, his headquarters was in Capernaum, which was a fishing village, okay? So it's no, no big surprise that a lot of fishermen lived there, but he chose to pick them. He didn't pick the Pharisees, the educated, the scribes, the lawyers. He chose simple, common men. And most of them, we don't even really know for sure exactly what they did. But notice the diversity here. Not only are there fishermen, but there's a tax man. <clears throat> and the tax man was taxing the fishermen. And he was a traitor to his country, he was overtaxing, he was extorting, he was doing all kinds of things, he was enemy, but when Jesus asked Matthew to walk away from it all, he did. But I'm sure the fishermen were like, man, I still remember last year when you took about half of what I made, still trying to catch up from those things. You know, Matthew's like, okay, sorry, sorry, <laughs> you know, but he walked away from all that. Um, you got Simon the Zealot, who is violently opposed, or was violently opposed, even to the point where, here's what zealots would do. They always stayed armed. They'd hide their swords under the robe. If ever, and Roman soldiers usually would travel two by two. But if they ever saw one just go to the restroom, they'd sneak up on the other, boom, stab him in the back and run off. And the other Roman soldier would come out and find his partner dead. And they were picking off Roman soldiers left and right. That's what the zealots did. They were like terrorists. Like, hey, Rome, get out of our country. This is God's country. We're defending God's country, and we will kill if we have to. And they were always planning a revolution, but they were doing it little by little with terrorist acts. And that's what Simon was doing. And here's Matthew who worked for the Romans, and here's Simon who was killing Romans. And they're together. Now, again, all that's in their background. I don't think Simon was killing people in Jesus' name or anything like that. But, and then you got Judas Iscariot. We don't know what he did for a living, but he wanted to be the treasurer. And we know what he did with the money. He pocketed a lot of it. And he, was, he was stealing from it. But Jesus chose these guys knowing how different they were and how they came from different backgrounds. He didn't pick a, hom a homogenous group where everybody looked and talked the same and was from the same political party. He wanted it to be a diverse group. And so you think about the different people getting along with their backgrounds. And even Judas. Jesus chose Judas. Did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? Yes, he did. And you know what? He picks people, even to be a part of Revolution Church, that he knows will fail. And it's just part of the process. And so... God can use anybody. He wants to use everybody, but he wants to be a diverse. In fact, every New Testament church, whether it's the church of Ephesus, the church of Philippi, any church you want to pick, every single one of them was ethnically diverse, economically diverse, educationally diverse. They were diverse in ages, and they were diverse in backgrounds. In the New Testament church, it was not uncommon for someone who was a Pharisee, who had lived a very righteous life their whole life, who trusted Christ as Savior, gave up the Phariseeism, was sitting there in church right next to a prostitute who used to serve in the temple of Diana. That was not uncommon in the New Testament church. And then here is someone who was a slave, they've been set free, sitting next to their, their former slave owner. There was people from all different backgrounds. Here was a demon-possessed girl at the church of Philippi sitting next to a guy who beat Paul with, with rods, you know, and that got saved. And they got saved at the same time. There was Lydia, who was a wealthy lady who ran a fashion business, basically, and church met in her house, and then people who were the poorest of the poor coming there. And you saw all that beautiful diversity in one place. And yet, in America, we've got the white church, the black church, the Spanish-speaking church, the Chinese church, the church for rich people who really don't want to mess with the riffraff, and then the church for the poor people who look at all those people as evil. And that is not the way God intended it to be. 
God intended to his church to be a diverse, economically and everything like that. I, I know of some guys who were wanting to plant a church here in Pearland, and they purposely went to the rich side of town because they wanted to get the givers so they could really grow a church fast. It didn't work. Jesus says, you just call, and whoever will may come. And he says, you know what, he, when he did the story of the wedding feast, it says he invited all the rich guests, and they, none of them came. He said, go out to the highways and byways and call the poor, the lame, and the blind. You know, we call everybody into the Lord's church and we celebrate the diversity. So, you know, if God moves you because of a job transfer or a military transfer or whatever circumstances, when I, I encourage you to do this. Don't look for a church or a small group where everyone looks and thinks like you. You need different points of view so you can grow in Christ. Number eight, a place for everybody and everybody in their place. Look at this chart right here of where the 12 disciples are listed. They're listed four times. John doesn't list them, but Luke repeats his list in the book of Acts because he wrote both books. In every list, Simon Peter's always listed first. The other names are shuffled in different ways. Also, it's interesting, and I don't have time to go into it, but they're always in three groups of four, which is interesting. So Jesus even had his small group of 12 divided into three discipleship groups. And, but notice Judas is always listed where? Always listed last. And no matter what those other lists, and everybody in the middle is kind of mixed up. But everybody has a place. Don't make your place with Judas, okay? Judas checked out. He decided to hang out with the vultures instead of doing what the Lord's will was. And, and you want to be in the list in your place. You may not always be at the top like Peter. Maybe you're just serving in some other way somehow. Ephesians 4 says this, The whole body joined, held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part, that's us, each member is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what the key to church growth is for Revolution Church? Every member doing its part. It's not like people just going to flock to hear Gary preach or everybody just going to come hear an amazing band. It's every part loving each other. And just like your body works together like a finely tuned machine or hopefully... That's the way the body of Christ should work. And when the body of Christ loves one another, encourages one another, that's how it grows spiritually and numerically. Number nine, prepare for trials and tears. Prepare for trials and tears. If someone says to you, you become a Christian, all your problems grow away, and everything is just great and rosy from here on. Not the truth. And there, there's a type of prosperity gospel being preached out there. Just name it and claim it. And God wants to bless you and make you healthy and wealthy and just like that. And that's God's will for everybody. Not true. In fact, the opposite is most of the time is true. Not saying God doesn't want anybody. It does, it's not God's will for everybody rich. I'm saying that you might be rich. You might be poor to the glory of God. You might be healthy. You might be sick to the glory of God. Look at the lives of the disciples. Some of this we know from Scripture. Most of it we know from history. Andrew was crucified like Jesus. Bartholomew was beaten, then crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. The other James was beheaded. John was boiled in oil, but that failed. And then he was exiled in Isle of Patmos and died of old age. Judas, the other Judas, was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death. Peter was crucified, but because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Jesus, he asked him to turn his cross upside down. And Philip was crucified, Simon crucified, Thomas speared to death, Matthias stoned to death. Wow. Prosperity gospel didn't work for them, did it? They were serving Jesus Christ, and sometimes serving Jesus means suffering. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If Jesus is perfect and people hate him, just think how much people may hate us for our faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3 says, Indeed, all, everybody say all, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now in America, that may mean you lose your job or people make fun of you at lunch. In the Sudan, that means they steal your children and rape them and put them into prostitution because you're a Christian. In, in China, it may mean that you're beaten. And, and they, you know, they have those, those prisons in China and now we're finding if photographs are leaking out that certain uh, types of Chinese, that the Mungars and Christians are being beaten and tortured in these prisons. And we're still trading like with China, like it's no big deal. Just trading with them, no sanctions, no problem, as they're just killing Christians and beating them. You know, if you're part of the sanctioned state-approved church who doesn't really preach the gospel, 
but preach is just kind of an easy, I love Jesus thing, then you're okay. But if you truly start preaching the gospel in China, it may cost you your life. And that day may come in our lifetime. I don't know. I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. But the Bible says that we will be persecuted to some degree, whether it be little or much. Number 10, it's not about recognition. It is not about recognition. These three disciples we know next to nothing about. Simon, we knew what he did, and that's it. James, the other James, and Thaddeus, we don't even know what they did for a living for sure. And, and we don't know. The Bible doesn't repeat them. It doesn't say they went off and did great things. We know from history they may have done some great things. But they are still one of, part of the 12. And they did some things, but they didn't get any recognition for it. Someday, the book of Revelation says, when the new Jerusalem comes down, there will be four walls and three gates on each side named after the 12 apostles. So they'll have a gate in heaven named after them. So it wasn't like they were total failure, failures, okay? But they didn't get recognition. Have you ever done something great and nobody thanked you for it? Welcome to the club, okay? If you're doing it for the thanks, if you're doing it for the praise, if you feel a little bit hurt because you didn't get recognition, you're doing it for the wrong reason. In fact, one of the purest, most authentic ways of serving God is when nobody knows you've even done it. And you know the Lord knows, and you're good with that. You're okay with that. Don't do it for the recognition. First Peter tells us the antidote for that. We should humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Don't look for people to exalt you or to praise you or to thank you. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't thank each other, okay? We, we thank the praise team, appreciate the music, we thank whatever. But if you're doing it for that for reason, then you're doing it for the all, all the wrong reasons. Humility is something we pray for, but we never thank God for answering that prayer. And then finally, number 12, word over wonders. The word of God is more important than the wonders of God. Both are important, but one is more important than the other. It says he sent them out to preach, which was primarily first, and have authority to cast out demons. Both of these are important, but which one came first? Preaching the Word. And the Bible, over and over again, when it lists something first, it usually means that's the most important part. Luke 10, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So he gave these apostles this amazing power. He said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Man, that's a pretty list, exciting list. Man, tread on serpents, because remember... Remember Paul, when they got shipwrecked, they were trying to build a fire, and he grabs a bundle of sticks, and in that bundle of sticks was a snake, and it bit him on the hand, and he shook it off, and all the islanders were like, oh man, he's cursed of God, but then he didn't die. And like, oh, you are God. He's like, no, 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 no. It was just part of the apostolic miraculous power there to do that and to raise the dead and all the things that went with it. He said, but don't even be excited about that. Here's what you want to be excited about. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is Jesus trying to say there? Be more excited that you're sheep than your shepherds. Be more excited about the theology that the gospel of Jesus Christ saved your soul. And that for all eternity, you'll be like, in spite of my sin, Jesus loved me? Jesus died in my place? That's amazing. Other people are like, oh, watch this, <laughs> you know, and do miracles, whatever. No, no, that's great. But the miracle that Christ would die for a sinner like me, we're going to be rejoicing for that for all eternity. And that's where the theology says, put your eyes on the Word of God more importantly than the wonders of God. Again, I'm not saying God doesn't do the miraculous. I'm saying don't get your eyes on the miraculous. In fact, Jesus warned us about that. He says an evil and adulterous generation is always looking for a sign. Okay? But no sign will be given to accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. Wait a minute. If you read the book of Jonah, there's no prophecies in there. Is Jesus wrong? No. The whole book is a symbol of the prophecy. That just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and nights and rise again. He's saying the best thing you can look for, more importantly than healing, more important than tongues, more important than raising the dead, more important than all that, is that you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as the greatest miracle the world has ever known. You put that first, the other things will fall into place. Man, does God do miracles? Yes, he does. I mean, the, the fact that this, we may be moving here for next to nothing is a miracle. I mean, that's amazing. We, we, we weren't even looking for this. It just came to us from a phone call that I got three months ago. 
And next thing you know, here's basically a million dollars worth of property, and it's basically saying, here's the keys. Do you realize there's churches just like ours who started a few years ago who are still saving and scraping and saving and scraping and going into building programs and raising money and, tr- and then having to borrow a million or whatever to build and then watch the building come up and work hard. And God's just saying, hey, Revolution Church, here. God does, still does amazing things. And, and you know what? The, the, the thing we have to be careful about is we don't get focused on, look what God's doing here. You know what's more important than this? is saving people. I would take five kids getting saved in the next few months over that building. And I'm not exaggerating at all. One of the things we have to be careful is we don't become building-centric. I'm, uh, there's some churches that are all about their building. We got to go there and meet there. And, and they'll even drive by and say, that's my church. Nah, that's my church. That's my church building. <laughs> and I'm, I'm persnickety about with my kids. They'll say, oh, there's our church. No, 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 that's Bounce Town. Remember when we used to meet over there? I said, no, that's Bounce Town. That's not our church. You don't see a steeple, do you? Okay. And I, I would just tease them about that all the time. But we, I don't want to ever lose this, you know. In fact, I guarantee you five years from now, we're going to, say, we're going to look back on all this and say those were the good old days. Because they're serving and doing all this stuff together. But keep your eyes on Jesus and him saving souls. That's more important than any big thing or building he can give us. So number 12 here, impact your world. Impact your world. I think I numbered the previous one wrong. Anybody catch that? Mark 16. It says, after he, he appeared to the 11. Oh, what, what happened? Why the 11? Judas has hung himself. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim what? The gospel to the whole creation. You know what we do sometimes? We go out into the whole world and say, hey, come to my church. We have great music. Come to our church. You can hear our preaching. Come to our church. We have really friendly people. The Bible says go and say, hey, Jesus loves you. And let's get them saved. And then we add them to the body of Christ. If you look at the map of the world, here's where history tells us the disciples went. And they obeyed. They went into all the world. You can even see Thomas way down there, went all the way down to southern India. And there's still Christians in southern India to this day, 2,000 years later, in a predominantly Hindu country because Thomas, doubting Thomas, put his hands in the, the holes and Jesus' hands in his side, and he believed, and he went all the way down to southern India to tell people about Jesus Christ. You see, if you look at the spread of Islam, it still is predominantly right around where Muhammad prophesied. In fact, Muslims believe that the, the, the real Quran is written in Arabic, and if you don't understand Arabic, you really don't understand the, the Quran. You can read an English translation, but it's not the same. And other than that, Muslim Islam is not predominantly covering the world. If you look at Buddhism, Buddhism is still centered around northern India and China, where, where Buddha grew up and did his ministry, and it's less than 5% in the United States and North America and Australia. Okay, so that very, very light pink. In the rest of the world, it's hardly even existent. It doesn't even come on the radar as even 1%. But when you look at the spread of Christianity, it is all over the world. It is the predominant. And in, even in the green and the purple areas, it's there. It's just not the predominant religion in the world. See, Islam is basically a culture for Arabs. Buddhism is primarily a culture for Asians. But Christianity is a culture for human beings. It translates anywhere in the world you go. You can see Native Americans in northwestern United States being Christians and celebrating Christianity. You can see people in the South Sudan that are African celebrating Christianity. It translates everywhere because it was made by God for his people. And that's what, what we're supposed to do is translate our gospel to all the nations and cultures of the world. So what is the gospel that the disciples gave their lives to spread around the world? What is this gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and what read this part with me, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. So how do you get saved? You get saved by the gospel. And then he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... This is more important than what you're going to have for lunch this afternoon. This is more important than what what your career is going to be for the next 10 years. This is more important than who you're going to marry. This this information right here, this is of first importance. What I also delivered is that, number one, everybody give me a one. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. All the sins of the world were placed upon him. He put them all on the ground. And number three, he was raised on the third day. That is the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection 
as full payment for our sins on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Have you received the gospel? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel? I want everybody to, if you would, pray with me right now. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. And I'm asking those who know for sure you're saved to be praying for the lost and for the Holy Spirit of God to open up blind eyes. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've never been born again, as Jesus said, you've never been saved, you can do that today. God has given you a free will. Is the Holy Spirit calling you this morning? Will you trust him? Will you accept him? If What you need to do is, number one, understand you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And we're not pointing fingers at you. We're all, everyone in this room is a sinner. We all have done horrible things that we're not proud of. We've sinned not only against one another. We have sinned against God. And if you see yourself that way as a sinner against God, that means you need a Savior. That means he's going to punish sin. But the great news is Jesus took that punishment for you. And he offers his life to you in exchange for yours. You could pray a prayer something like this. The prayer doesn't save you, but you could communicate with God in faith like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm so thankful you died in my place on the cross. I trust you to save me. I give my life to you. I make you the Lord and Savior of my life right now. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. If, if you did that, if you made that decision, please let me know about that. I'd like to talk to you about what your next steps as a Christian are. And... Um, you can text me about any question. Maybe even you're not ready about for this and you just want to know more. Let's go out. I'll take you out to lunch or buy you a cup of coffee. Let's talk about Jesus and get this settled. Okay, you may be seated. We're going to do question and answer now. Ms. Chen is going to come and help me with that. Just a reminder, after question and answer, if you want, you can stick around for the life groups. We have one for the teens and one for the adults. Everybody's welcome to stay for that. So um, let me give you my phone. This is where the questions come. And... You can start with uh, anyone you want. Actually, start with the Amanda's if you want first. Which one is Amanda? Oh, yes, thank you. Good morning. Here we go. How is it fair for God to give me eternal punishment for temporary sins? She's got three. So yes. you want to do one, one at, at a time. time? Yes, thank you. Okay, so great question. And these are questions that um, typically atheists ask. How, how can you commit a sin that doesn't take very much time and then you pay for it for all eternity? Well, the amount of time that it takes to commit the sin has nothing to do with the length of the punishment. I could shoot someone and kill someone's mom and all their children and their husband suffer for years, but that crime only took a second. So should I only suffer for a second? Okay, so the length of the time of the sins, temporary sins, has nothing with the length of the punishment. What's more important is the, the sin, who it's against, okay? Um, if, if uh, let's, I've shared this illustration before, but it, it's a good thing to illustrate to remember. Let's say that someone kills your child, brutally murders your child, and you go to court, and you face your accuser, and somehow you're able to get access to him and you just smack that, that, that criminal in the face. Everybody in the, the courtroom will be like, but they won't be totally surprised like, hey, he had that coming, right? But let's say you walk up to a total stranger on the street and just smack him in the face. It's like, it's the same thing, but now it's against who you've done it against. And you can walk up to someone who loves you and you smack him in the face for no reason. All of a sudden, that's worse than any of those. And again, this, this may seem graphic, but I want you to point to the, the point here. If you were to smack a baby, a brand new baby, people would be like, that's horrible. That's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. You see, it's the same action, but who it's against changes the consequence. Because the more innocent the person, the greater the crime. Well, who is more innocent than God? So when you smack God in the face by sinning against him and say, I'm going to run my old life, even though you created me, I'm going to do what I want to do, then it's a smack in the face of the ultimate holy person, the most innocent one, and that's God. And really, God doesn't send people to hell. They choose it. The Bible says, Jesus says, I've created hell for the devil and his angels. So when you, if I told you, hey, everybody on earth, this earth is going to burn up, but here's a spaceship to leave, and you say, no, I'm staying. 
you know, when the spaceship leaves and the, and the earth catches fire, you're the one that's chosen your destiny. And we choose to go away from God, and God is warmth, and God is love, and God is all that stuff. So we're spending eternity with everything opposite of what God is. God is light. We're spending eternity in darkness. God is love. We spend eternity in pain, and on and on. All right, um, go to one of the other questions besides hers. What's Paul's miraculous power? Um, so, Paul raised the dead, okay? Remember Eutychus, Paul's preaching to like one in the morning, and this young guy is sitting in the window, and he falls asleep during Paul's preaching, and he falls down from the second floor, and he dies. And Paul goes out and raises him dead. That was one of them, okay? Um, Paul, the ability to write the, most of the New Testament, from divine inspiration, that's still miraculous because he couldn't have figured out those words on his own. Um, he also, Paul also cast out demons. There was a, the young lady following them, saying these guys are from God. They were, she was saying the right thing, but she was. An, it says Paul was annoyed by her and turned around and cast out the demons. So Paul had several different miraculous gifts. to people who are non-denominational or Baptist on where they go when they die or do they have different levels of heaven? I'll, I'll, I'll abstain from humor on this one. Okay, um, no, there, there, are not, there are levels of heaven, but it's not based on your denomination whether you're Baptist or not. Okay? In fact, there's a large number of Baptists that will be in hell because they have said, oh, I prayed the prayer, and they think the prayer saves them. They never fully gave their life to Christ. Okay, so it doesn't matter if you're non-denominational, Methodist, or whatever. Um, the, the rewards in heaven are based on your works for Christ done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, Paul says that there's wood, hay, and stubble, and that there's different levels of rewards and different. And of course, when we get those crowns, what do we turn around and do with them? We cast them at His feet. So you might get lots of crowns because the Bible talks about seven different crowns. You may get all of them. I don't know. You may get different all kinds of rewards: gold, silver, and precious gems. 1 Corinthians talks about, but in the end, I could not have done any of these things without you, Jesus, so here, and we give them back to him. The saddest part of heaven will be if you're empty-handed. You got saved, but you lived a life just for yourself, and there's no rewards for you. So when everybody's saying, here, Jesus, I worship you with my rewards, and you're like, um, you just put your hands in your pocket. If, you, if your white robe has pockets, I don't know. So um, good question. What else? How does God himself pray if he is God? Good question. So God, Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. So the man prayed to God. Okay, now if, you, if your little brain can't comprehend that, neither can mine. Okay, but it, the Bible clearly says it's true. Okay, because Jesus not only prayed to his father all the time, but at the same time, he said, I am. Remember Moses going before the burning bush and because God presented himself as a burning bush. It doesn't mean God's a bush, okay? He just presented himself that way so Moses could see him in a holy way. And Moses says, well, when I go talk to Pharaoh, who should I say sent me? He said, I am has sent you. So then Jesus, when they're like, are you the one that's the Messiah to come? He says, I am. And they all fell over backwards, okay? So he's saying, I, I am the great I am, just like the burning bush, Moses. Here, instead of a burning bush, I'm here in human flesh. And this human flesh needs food, this human flesh needs water, this human flesh needs uh, sleep, and this human flesh needs to pray. But there's no sin in this human flesh, so I could be, God could, in, in Jesus, could be the perfect human sacrifice. Because to atone for the sins of people, it takes a person. And so God became that person because there was nobody else. Moses rose up to be the Messiah, he failed. David rises up to be the Messiah, he fails. One leader after another, they think, well, maybe he's the Messiah. They all failed. Then Jesus says, no, all of them point to me. I am the perfect one. Could Judas have made a different decision? Absolutely. I think Judas had the same opportunity Peter had. Peter denied the Lord. And even Judas, what did he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He took it back and said, hey, I, I changed my mind. And they're like, we're not touching it. All of a sudden, they got religious and everything like that. And it says that Peter repented of himself. I'm sorry, Judas repented of himself. Where's our, where's our repentance supposed to be directed? Towards God. That God, I'm sorry for what I've done, not I'm sorry I got caught, I've really messed up. 
And so understand this, that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Judas's problem was temporary. He could have confessed it, forsaken it. It all would have been fine. And maybe he would have been one of the 12. But he chose a different destiny. By the way, um, you've heard of Lee Strobel, the guy that the movie Case for Christ was written about. He's a professor at Houston Baptist University. He has a new book out called The Case for Heaven. And he talks about people. There's been four people that are survivors of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. They survived. And all four of them and other suicide attempts that failed, they said that on their way down, they're like, oh my gosh, this is the biggest mistake I ever made. I can't believe it. And then they survived. So let me tell you something. Don't, do not consider suicide. You will regret it. Everybody who's, these people who have survived suicide all wish they could have flown right back up that bridge. But thank the Lord they survived and most of them became Christians because of it. The Bible speaks of anointing with oil to set aside for a holy purpose, usually leadership. Why do people anoint other people and even things with oil today? Sure. James chapter 5 says, If anybody is sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, and the elders anoint them with oil and prayer. And it says, and if he has sinned, of course everybody has sinned, but in the context it means, oh, if he's done a sin that's causing this illness, it will be forgiven him and he'll be healed. Okay? So it's not a guarantee. Um, there's other, I could give more detailed answer on that, but you, the most common anointing of oil you see in the New Testament is anointing of oil for the sick. I believe it's symbolic. I don't think olive oil is medicinal. Um, some people would say it was meant to be medicinal. I don't think there's anything miraculous. I don't think, hey, buy this bottle of oil for your donation of only $49.95 and you'll be healed. Uh, that's for the scammers, okay? I think it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God upon that person to heal them, specific in, specifically in cases where a sin is contributing to that. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Does Islam offer salvation, and how do you earn it? Islam does not offer a hope of salvation. They offer salvation, but ask any dedicated Muslim if they know they're going to paradise to be with Allah, and they'll say, no, you don't know until you get there. And you go through your whole life not knowing. Man, as Christians, we got something much better than that. First John 5 says, these things are written that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. You can know here right now today, if you've trusted Christ your Savior, you've been born again, you gave your life to Him, you know you're saved. And, the, and First John also says in chapter 2 that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit says, yes, you're my child, you're my child. You're not going to hear a voice necessarily, but you will get confirmation. If you're not getting that confirmation, pray about it, and maybe you need to look at your decision and second-guess it. I think that and then go back to uh, Amanda's format. I just was saving those for... Okay. Right. Number yeah. two, how did Jesus, God, lose anything by being just dead for three days? He's gone, so that's no real loss to him. Right. I heard this question on the radio. An atheist asked, what's the big deal? Jesus dies for three days. How is that any loss to God? It's, it's, it's a shell game where they're changing the, where the ball's at. It's not being dead in a grave for three days. That was the easy part. It's what Jesus went through on the cross, okay? And again, what you go through on the, what Jesus went through on the cross, he's God, so how did he feel that pain? Infinitely, okay? Um, imagine someone being tortured for nine hours and just say, oh, well, that was nothing. See, don't put, they, 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 they shift things around and say, oh, see, he's dead in the grave. That's easy. It wasn't Jesus being dead and gone for three days. It's what he went through on the cross. And who would want to go through that? And again, he didn't just die for his own sins. Okay? Think about how, think of the worst thing you've done and how bad you felt. Okay? That guilt weighing upon you. Like, literally, you feel like your shoulders are being weighed down. Now, times that by 32 billion people on you, crush, literally crushing you. And then on top of that, the father who you adore, who you have an eternal love relationship with you, who you have never been separated from, now has to turn his back and his eyes from you. And Jesus at that point in time was the loneliest person in the universe. So what he went through was infinite. It wasn't just three days. It wasn't just hours on the cross. It was, it was taking eternal punishment at one point in time, all at the same time. So Jesus suffered immensely, is an understatement. How is it fair to people who've never heard of Jesus to be punished for not accepting him as their savior? 
great, great question. And this is a typical atheist question, and, and it, it comes from a good point. Understand this. People do not go to hell because they've never accepted Christ. They go to hell because they're sinners. Everyone has sinned against God. Jesus has come to save. If Jesus is unable, not unable, if, if not all come to Christ, that's not his fault. Okay? So someone, so, let's just say this. Let's say Hitler never heard about Jesus, which is probably not likely. Let's just, but just say he never heard the gospel. Does he still not deserve hell? Absolutely. You say, well, it's not fair to Hitler because he never heard the gospel. No. For all the things he's done, but all of us, again, the crime is, is who it's against. Now, that's another point. Someone asked about degrees of heaven. There's also degrees of hell. Remember, Jesus said, how much worse will it be for you, Tyre and Sidon? Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, because you had me here, and you're still rejecting, and you will burn hotter in hell. So there are degrees of hell, as just like there are degrees of heaven. I don't think the degrees of heaven are far apart. You know, it's, it, uh, it, I, I think the degrees of hell can be, but that's a moot point. Um, but when people say, well, all sins in the same eyes of God, that's like the dumbest statement ever, okay? He punishes more for more severe sins, and he disciplines Christians differently too. Remember, he punishes the lost, but he disciplines the believer. He doesn't punish us. Our punishment was on the cross. Everything he does is for your good. So if I, if I rob a bank and steal $10,000, God's going to discipline me more than if you took the pen from the bank. Okay, to say it's all the same in the eyes of God, that's, that's not, that doesn't even make sense. All right, cool. All right, let's go to the last slide for me, if you would. Let's stand, and we'll be dismissed. And we're going to read this scripture together here. All right, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, all of us together. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.